Another way in which municipalities have been altered in, in very profound ways has been that the, you know detention facilities are now a necessary source of revenue in order for city budgets to operate, to function, to provide schools, to provide parks, to provide you know facilities that we take for granted or we assume to be part of what a um, kind of municipal government is supposed to do. The dependency upon immigration detention contracts and subcontracts is now you know part and parcel of how those governments how those municipal governments and local governments actually uh, function There's, um, one of the the meetings um, of the county legislators in Essex County where you know th- there's been ongoing debate about the uh, use of immigration detention and the facility the, the use of the county facility at, at Essex is, uh, and one of the attendees at one of uh, the, these um, county legislature meetings asked uh, one of the elected officials, um, if I take my kids to a zoo, am I supposing, are we visiting something that was built using money from $117 per night per detainee? And the response from uh, the, the elected official was explicitly to confirm that ICE money is certainly part of it. You're listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast from the journal Urban Affairs Review. You just heard from Deirdre Conlon, an associate professor of geography at the University of Leeds, who has spent the last decade with her collaborator Nancy Heemstra untangling the complex webs of what they call detention economies in American cities. I spoke with Deirdre and Nancy about how these networks influence the fabric of urban life, like the zoo in Essex County that you just heard about. Prison infrastructure, which includes migrant detention facilities, are often touted by local and regional policymakers as surefire job creators and economic buoys. And as Nancy and Deirdre point out, this tendency ends up influencing the legal infrastructure around incarceration too. This relationship may be familiar to those of you who have read Ruth Wilson Gilmore's 2007 analysis of California's prison economy, Golden Gulag. Nancy dug into these dynamics for us. The the rise of kind of the carceral economy, the carceral industries in the United States is completely linked to deindustrialization and kind of federal uh, withdrawal of support to states and local governments. And so um, with the the kind of carceral economy that was expanding, expanding, expanding with laws and more infrastructure that kind of brought more money to local economies. Um, and, you know, they kind of reached a point where that was almost nearly maxed out, right? And so there is even traced in um, board meetings of these big uh, prison companies like CoreCivic and, and Geo Group, you know, this like, oh, well, now let's uh, work on immigration detention. And there was a concerted effort to shift to lobbying for harsher immigration laws and a bigger emphasis on detention, right? And so in terms of kind of a federal carceral infrastructure that's going on, um, in a lot of the where we're looking at in um, New York and New Jersey, especially with county facilities. So, and maybe to connect this back to Deirdre's anecdote about the zoo earlier, how do you see this playing out in terms of economic development and restructuring? So, I mean, I think that that really gets at the way in which 
there's a, this massive uh, dependency which is very hard to un- unravel or to get away from once it has been uh, established. Um, so it, those are some of the ways I think that the fabric of the, of the city has changed. And on top of all of that, of course, are the questions about um, or, or the issues around sort of people, the, the arguments that we see in prison economies, for example, that that you know detention provides jobs for deindustrialized uh, kind of n- neighborhoods and and regions of of the country, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just to add to that, I think there is there's the reality of financial dependency, and I think there's also a myth about it. Um, because a lot of the jobs for local people in these facilities do not pay well. Um, if you, I was just recently looking up some of the kind of online reviews of employers um, for some of the facilities, for some of the, the companies that run the food service, the medical service, et cetera. And they get horrible ratings. Like a lot of people are like, don't work at for the food service in whatever jail because they treat you like crap and you don't get overtime and da 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 da. So I, I there is part of it is just a myth of dependence um, because a, a lot of the profits um, they're they're not distributed equally among community members, right? Um, they might go some to fund community um, services, but in terms of the argument that these provide good jobs for our community, that just often does not play out. But a lot lot of people believe that they do. So we have an example of how migration or migration policy can shape urban space through the infrastructure of incarceration, borders, and policing by transforming our relationship to everyday public goods and services like parks or that zoo into one that depends on the circulation and detention of migrants. I spoke with Leslie Gross-Weirdson, who you heard from earlier in the series, about the dynamics of migration on urban space. Yeah, so urban space became this really interesting place where um, where bordering played out. And I guess I should say for a moment here that I really think of border both as a site or a place, but also as a process. And so we have two things happening at the same time. We have places where bordering the process takes place, where people are either included or excluded, their mobility is limited in particular ways, or their mobility is facilitated in particular ways. But it's also a place where these logics obtain and where they are rewriting or organizing the landscape. And so urban areas and cities in Morocco became the border both in terms of the way that people were contained in them and also the way that they were uh, continually excluded. And I'll give, I guess I'll give some examples of that. So once migrant people are rounded up by border police um, at the fences or, you know, where they could launch um, boats to, to head toward Europe and they're dumped in these cities in the Moroccan interior with nothing, with just the shirts on their back, they often camp right where they're dumped at a city bus stop or in an urban park or somewhere that's often very centrally located and very visible. And as 
because of their dispossessions, because they've been uh, taken away from the place where they were, because they were rounded up and carried off without any of their possessions, they have limited resources or no resources, and they have to hustle, as they say, to get by. So they'll often beg at city streets, um, camp in empty lots, uh, you know, under tents, um, practice, you know, try to find either day labor, which often puts them in competition with Moroccan laborers, or um, operate in the illicit or informal economic sphere, practicing sex work, dealing drugs, um, selling black market items. And so it's actually quite an effective way to both contain people to limit them from traveling because they don't have any resources to do it anymore and to maintain their otherness which is a different kind of border within the Moroccan social consciousness in ways that perhaps are maybe even more influential than what happens, you know, at the fences or at sea that, that, that those processes don't really concern your average Moroccan citizen as much, but having folks dumped in the middle of a city and, and living in the midst of, of Moroccans often is part of that process of sort of reinscribing these exclusions reinforcing support for certain kinds of border um, violence and is quite effective. And at the same time, this organized abandonment that is orchestrated by the state devolves their care to these same people. So Moroccan citizens are quite welcoming in many cases, quite generous with folks. Um, they give money to people who beg at street corners or outside of mosques oftentimes. But, you know, all of that care is put on an already taxed citizenry. Um, unemployment's really high. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of poverty in these spa same urban spaces where migrants are dropped off. So all of that, you know, contributes to producing this border and urban space. Um, yeah, and it's out of sight. And, the, and in addition to devolving this care to Moroccan citizens, it also devolves it to NGOs. Um, and this whole migration industry has emerged as a way of capitalizing on, um, you know, competing for funds from European donors and so on to provide for these migrants. This is an interesting case to compare against what Nancy and Deirdre are looking at with the detention economies framework. To be certain, the private companies that profit from carceral institutions and infrastructures are not the same things as NGOs in European cities. But in both cases, these are responsibilities that have basically been offloaded from the state. I spoke with David Kaufman, who you heard from last time, about the role of NGOs in migration policy and services, uh, particularly in Switzerland, where he lives and focuses much of his research. Imagine if you're in a smaller town and a new face is there and then you are kind of more recognized than if you're in a big city. Um, and so that's why they, they are there and mostly they work. Uh, so they have to work. They don't get any social assistance um, and they work for a long time uh, and there and um, they just make a living. They're very precarious situation of um, uh, where they live and house. And then um, there are some NGOs that do legal counseling for them that also help them to some degree. And then after... Five, or normally, like after, after 
10 years, they can think, okay, do I qualify for a hardship clause? Um, and then they can try to do it with the help of NGOs and lawyers and can kind of apply for a hardship clause. Um, else, I mean, they have kids in schools. The schools are not allowed to share the data. Also, the hospitals are not allowed to share the data with the um, migration officials and the local police. These are called firewalls, also in the whole um, literature, so that basic services, basic human needs are protected and this data is not shared um, with anyone. So there are some rights um, that they have, um, but it's just a way to survive. And at some point they are they're hoping that they get a hardship clause seen as intermediary actors between refugees and, and city authorities or authorities in general. And I see it in two ways. So on the one way, there are intermediary actions in providing services. At some point, they're providing kind of basic human services like food, shelter, legal aspects, um, health, um, when the city is kind of not willing to or in cases of hardship or during COVID, NGOs were very important also for, for, for irregular migrants sometimes, but they also kind of doing parallel parallels, what we call parallel services in the name of cities, financed through cities. Cities are not kind of, um, they don't have the rights um, to directly engage with irregular migrants. So they kind of fund NGOs, give them money for their services, and they also know that they are using a lot of these funds for irregular migrants. So they have like a, an ambiguous relationship with the city sometimes, or some NGOs are purely or cooperating a lot with the, the cities and their, their funding goes a lot to cities. Some are kind of saying, no, we're stepping in because the city is doing not, nothing. So, But they are very important in these services and also legal services that take the role as kind of the advocates for irregular migrants. So that's the service aspect. It's the political aspects is similarly in this regard. So um, they are kind of in a difficult uh, position between cooperation and cooptation, what it's called in the literature. So cooperation, they they need good um, relationship with the city authorities. They need to be the advocates and going to city hall and out. They need to be seen as the uh, as the the main responsible partners for irregular migrants because they don't have a voice. On the other hand, if they collaborate too much, um, they also feel okay. Sometimes they are co-opted um, because I don't stand behind the policy or the practice of the authorities. Activists and advocates of migrants have to walk a very fine line to preserve access to resources and the ears of politicians and administrators, but also to ensure that their clients aren't steamrolled by the system. Deirdre talked about the efforts of a few of these organizations, some of whom have had some success in recent years. The Detention Watch Network, that is, you know, linking up organizations of various different sizes, of various different kinds of scopes uh, across the, the, the country. Um, and they've been, I mean, they've been doing that for, for years and years and years. But um, I think that one of the things that I've seen or maybe just been paying more attention to in the last number of uh, years is that they're also doing a number of educational events and webinars and uh, things of that nature that allow people to kind of connect 
uh, around issues of profit making and uh, the, the sort of systems of exploitation and extraction that that we are writing about and that people are kind of fighting uh, in in different communities around the country. So I think that that would be certainly be one of the larger umbrella organizations that I think is absolutely pivotal to this uh, campaign. There's also a number of examples of communities, group or a series of groups in Atlanta, but working in the prison system uh, over a, a period of a number of years who took a, 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 a for want of a better way of putting it, maybe a kind of a sustainability focus in their effort to end the use of prison in municipality in in a, a city uh, region. And the argument that they made was essentially that in order for us to have a sustainable community, we need to uh, think about education and we need to think about healthcare and we need to think about you know other aspects of of life and social reproduction. Um, and in in doing that, they you know, able to link up different services and different sectors and different advocates and activists in in different sectors to 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 kind of, uh, propel that that fight. And you know, so so those are are at the forefront, we'll say, of uh, of these kinds of uh, developments. So it's happening both in local areas as well as at at kind of broader national levels as well through these umbrella organizations like DWN. But of course, as Nancy points out, just as capital is mobile, so is the detention infrastructure supported by it. And even though one detention center may close, communities in other states or cities end up being the hosts for these facilities instead. You know, while we think that these activist um, movements and sanctuary movements um, around at, at the local and state level around detention are very important and they need to keep doing what they're doing, it's also important to remember that for many of these, um, um, uh, in many of these states, when they have closed the county or they have ended immigration detention in their county facilities, those immigrants are just transferred elsewhere. Um, and they're often transferred to states um, that are much less friendly, like New Jersey, New York. They provide pro bono, some degree of pro bono representation for immigrants in court. They're moved to places where, where they don't have access to that. They, they aren't near families, right? They're with um, judges much more likely to make negative decisions in immigration um, courts. So and there are plenty of states saying, great, send me these people, right? So that goes back to what Dee's point about an abolitionist, um, abolitionist argument and framing underlying it all to recognize it can't just happen at, at local and state levels to really be successful. And I'll just um, add here that I think, you know, Whatever these national um, efforts and activist um, organizations are, they are up against just a massive financial force. So while I know organizations like Detention Watch Network and Freedom for Immigrants and um, the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, they go to Washington and do national level lobbying, but they have pennies to spend compared to the millions of all of these huge companies and equity firms and all of this. So, I mean, I think where our work, where we hope that it comes in, and especially this this book, this more popular oriented book that we're working in um, contributes to the discussion is to think about you have to kind of dismantle and remove those financial incentives, right? So if even like the Biden administration is coming along um, and 
and um, supporting the case of companies like CoreCivic, um, who runs the Elizabeth Detention Center, you know that their kind of influence is so strong. Um, and so we have to think about how can we change the detention system and who makes money so that a lot of those financial incentives are removed, right? Um, so, I mean, as an example of, of during the Trump administration, who Trump was very openly pro-prison, pro-detention, there are certain detention, uh, there's what, what are called the national detention standards that are supposed to um, ensure that there is kind of a minimum level of care um, and safety in detention facilities. Trump essentially cut those in half and made them very vague and even more. I mean, not that they were super effective to begin with, but even a minimum level of security was just slashed, right? And I'm sure that that I, I, I'm suspect that behind that was a lot of lobbying by these companies. And the Biden administration has not um, restored the previous level of detention standards, even though it would be very easy to, to do that um, um, just by federal um, um, executive decree. So I think in there you see kind of the workings of these, the, the financial influence um, driving um, um, kind of the staying power of detention and the continued expansion. Just to add, you know, a couple, a couple of thoughts uh, here. You know, I think we we know as scholars and thinkers that contradiction is at the heart of uh, capitalism, and it is about kind of uh, moving into this basis of contradiction that makes and allows capitalism to to work and to work effectively. So we that's essentially what we see playing out. Uh, here, but I, I also want to just kind of echo and add to the point that Nancy is making, and, and that is part of the message that we want to try to get across with our work and with the latest iteration of our work is really to think about what the implications are of detention economies for ending immigration detention. So it's not enough to end immigration detention in a particular county or in a particular state. Because what we know is that immigrants get moved to other facilities in, in other states where detention is, is still taking place. Um, it's, it's not enough to, you know, to, to call for the end of detention without also calling for systemic changes that you know, allow for migrants to come safely to the, the United States, uh, that grant asylum seekers work permits in ways that don't end up making them wait for years and years in order to get those uh, work permits. So, you know, it's a more systemic argument, which is completely in line with a, an abolitionist framework that that we we want to make clear through the, the detention economies framework that, that we're, we're calling for, right? So it's sort of a cautionary tale really about how these contradictions get articulated and get utilized by capitalism and the, the sort of the, the longer um, term project that, that everybody needs to get on board with if we are going to end this, this um, really problematic system. There's another unintended consequence of migration in cities that Andrew Baldwin brought up during our conversation. He pointed out that at the intersection of dynamics like migration, climate change, race, and urban change, there's a really critical but overlooked factor at work. 
And that is that um, coincident with the emergence of the urban um, policy turn and debates around climate change and migration that I mentioned earlier, the National League of Cities, um, which is a Washington, D.C.-based organization, uh, also um, produced a report on climate change and human migration, again, with a similar kind of remit which was to convince or to encourage um, urban policymakers to in the United States to think about what you know climate change and migration would mean to their cities. So for some cities, that's you know Buffalo and Duluth often um, get cited as the places where you will have a lot of in migration from wealthy people from California and Florida and elsewhere selling up and relocating. You will have um, in places like Houston and Orlando and Atlanta, large numbers of uh, Caribbean and coastal migrants moving to these cities, so-called climate migrants. I mean, this probably goes without saying in the U.S. context, but, you know, there's, there's, we need to think, I think, People working in urban sociology in the U.S. need to think really carefully about what's going on in that space. And I, I, I instantly go to um, Cheryl Harris's um, "Whiteness as Property," and you know the idea that climate change and migration discourse in the wrong hands becomes a technology that will allow um, for policymakers to consolidate property values in white locations and um, and or work out policy mechanisms that will continue to enhance the value of those um, real estate investments at the expense of poor, um, you know, communities, black communities, Hispanic communities in the United States. And that probably goes without saying, but I think it's just worth putting it out there. Because even while the discourse on climate change and migration invokes a kind of ethical responsibility. Yes, of course we need to help those who will be displaced by climate change. It, it also comes with um, a lot of unstated historical baggage that um, requires a lot of very careful scrutiny. Whether you're an experienced researcher studying migration, urban space, borders, or any of the other related topics we touched on in this series, or if you're new to some of these ideas and themes, you can probably tell that we weren't able to cover everything. This is an incredibly complex phenomena with so many different dynamics at play that it would have been reckless to try and account for all of them. But we do hope that we introduced some new ideas and new scholars to you, and maybe in a way that helps you think about the relationship between cities and migration a little differently. That's it for this series, but check back in next year as we celebrate the 60th anniversary of Urban Affairs Review with a look back at the political, social, and economic forces that shaped the discipline of urban studies over each decade from the 1960s on. You've been listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by Urban Affairs Review. Special thanks to the Lindy Institute at Drexel University and the editors at UAR. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. This show was written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily Holloway. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, urbanaffairsreview.com, 
for more information about the journal and the show and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. See you next time.